Hi, everyone, and welcome to the DCRO Risk Governance Podcast, where we're focusing on risk governance issues, learning about the work of and receiving guidance from experienced board directors and senior executives. My guests today are Leo Tillman and General Charles Jacoby. Leo and General Jacoby are the co-authors of the book Agility, which we'll be discussing in more detail during today's podcast. By way of introduction, Leo and I have known each other for more than 15 years. He's a widely recognized expert on risk, strategy, and finance, having held senior roles at BlackRock and Bear Stearns, and having taught finance at Columbia University, his graduate and undergraduate alma mater. He's an advisor to companies, governments, and institutional investors around the world, and is the author of three additional books, including Financial Darwinism, which was published just as the subprime crisis began. He's been profiled as a business visionary by Forbes and was referred to in a conversation I had with one of the leaders of a multi-trillion dollar asset management firm as the smartest person I have ever met. General Charles Jacoby retired from the United States Army as the four-star commander of NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, and the U.S. Northern Command. He led the 135,000-member multinational corps during Operation Iraqi Freedom, has served as the Director of Strategy, Plans, and Policy for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and as the U.S. Military Representative to the United Nations. In 2012, he led the U.S. military response to Hurricane Sandy. General Jacoby is the Distinguished Chair of the Modern War Institute at West Point, his undergraduate alma mater. He holds graduate degrees from the University of Michigan, the School of Advanced Military Studies, and the National War College. Among his many decorations are the Defense Distinguished Service Medal with two bronze oak leaf clusters, the Distinguished Service Medal with one bronze oak leaf cluster, the Defense Superior Service Medal with two bronze oak leaf clusters, the Legion of Merit, and the Bronze Star with one bronze oak leaf cluster. Welcome, Leo and General Jacoby. It's my pleasure to have you with us today. It's great to be here. Thanks, David. Yeah, it is is, uh, wonderful to be on with you today. Well, it's great to have the two of you here. Um, I think that the perspective you guys bring to um, the the podcast and, and what the goal of this podcast is, is is pretty spot on. So why don't we begin by discussing your different experiences and perspectives and business in the military and how they came together in the book Agility. Are there any key elements of agility that are most prescient and most relevant for the time we're in right now? Leo, do you want to start off? Sure. Again, uh, David, it's great to be here. Um, We have known each other, as you said, for a very long time. And I think what you're trying to do in bringing some of the best ideas to chief risk officers and directors is just so important. So my my road to agility came through risk and finance. Uh, For a long time, I thought that, first of all, knowing the entire universe of risks and uncertainties facing any organization is an absolute prerequisite to being able to navigate change and be successful. But it's also the dynamism with which you manage that portfolio um, that has really been a focus of of my work. So agility is the next reincarnation of that. Uh, It's a much broader discussion of what it takes to navigate change, change from the viewpoint of risk and balance sheets, but broadly in terms of organizations, business models, uh, et cetera. So when General Jacoby and I first met and compared notes on our perspectives, we discovered that we've been thinking about the same set of issues for a very long time and had complete alignment with respect to the need for the concept and theory of agility, but also the need to operationalize it. 
but obviously it, it was fascinating to compare nodes and come at it from very different perspectives. Yeah. So, uh, David, the uh, uh, it was you know my good fortune to run into Leo soon after retiring, and one of the things that troubled me uh, as I retired was just reflecting back on the the uncertainty that uh, is really part and parcel of operating in a military environment and the requirement to um, not just understand uh, uncertainty and, uh, and, you know, the constant disruption, whether it's geopolitical or budgetary or uh, any number of factors that um, we have to deal with to maintain readiness and accomplish our missions, but that uh, we, we really – uh, despite our uh, command and control philosophies and despite our understanding of the theory and practice of war, we really hadn't uh, dealt with those uncertainties in a s- systematic way. And uh, we, we really continuously fell back on you know, what I would call a list of buzzwords and things we were going to do. And in the end, they were really uh, just trying to do more or do the same with less. Uh, whether it's a budgetary problem or a capability problem or a change in administration, a change of goals and objectives for or military policies. And and one of those buzzwords that got thrown around a lot was agility. And, and my sense was that there was something really meaningful there, but it, it hadn't been defined and it hadn't been um, talked about in a consistent way. And in the end, uh, when you throw out, let's be more, we're going to handle this disruption by being more lethal or being more flexible or being more adaptive or being more agile. The chances are that, you know, throughout the breadth and depth of the organization, there's going to be misunderstandings and misapplication of of what senior leaders mean by those terms. And so uh, it was really refreshing to talk to Leo and, uh, you know, how we talked about risk and how we talk about risk in the military and how we talk about uncertainty and and how organizations and leaders deal with that. And, of course, uh, the most important thing we do is win, win fights for the nation, and we found that common ground as well. And uh, so we've worked together on this idea of let's define it, let's unpack it, and then let's try to uh, not just do the theory, but the practice and, and operationalize it. And that's how we came up with the book. Well, and I think we, the, we hope it helps people. One of the things that we'll talk about, I'm sure, in just a bit is this notion of will to win, which I think you were starting to allude to in your comments. Um, and I think that that's an important part of this whole framework that you've developed. But I, I want to go to this first time you met. Um, I'm picturing this in a way where a conversation could go on for quite some time between the two of you. But Leo, your work early on, um, as you'd mentioned in finance, um, but now investments in corporate strategy and and risk management there, this seems to me to have, um, you know, there's there's a certain element to that of loss uh, that we have to deal with. But then in general, Jacoby's world, um, loss can mean loss of life um, and have some really dramatic uh, consequences. What parallels did you guys have in your conversations when you were looking at how you each thought about risk? Did you find that there was 
that contrast, or did you find there was more complementary uh, notions to how you approach things? Well, it's, I think it was uh, it was a bit of both, and it was incredibly enriching just to think through it. And of course, um, our conversations immediately zeroed in on a few issues. One is how do you universally define risk? Because again, as you said, David. Um, the nature of losses, the nature of exposures in business and finance is quite different from the realm of warfare or the realm of government. And we try to create something universal that would apply to all organizations. And the second one was really um, quickly understanding that uh, the division between risk and uncertainty is incredibly important because that's where I think a lot of the common frameworks and languages all come together. So, so one of the things we did very early on is try to define risk in universal ways. And of course, in business and finance, it would be something like exposure times likelihood times consequence, which typically is like a recovery rate or something like that. But um, in the military, when, when we spoke about this, the definition was much broader than that. Uh, instead of saying the word exposure, you would describe it as vulnerabilities. And instead of talking about specific loss or uh, rate of recovery, you would talk about consequences. And that language matters because it essentially broadens your notion of the entire set of vulnerabilities that can create uh, loss or exposure. And then that the consequences are much richer as well. So right off the bat, it was an ability to broaden the set of risks and really understand that uh, a particular exposure can be generated through a number of vulnerabilities, many of which we have not necessarily thought through, and that our exposure to risk creates consequences way beyond the direct ones. So, so this is just one of the examples of how uh, combining these uh, different worlds on a much deeper level um, was truly beneficial. General Jacoby, is the risk equation that's in the book something that, that you had derived? Well, as a senior leader, it was uh, critical to speak in terms of risk, especially, you know, at the top of the food chain and while you're interacting with uh, political leadership and, and policymakers. Um, they really want to understand what you mean by risk. And so uh, I just came up with that, um, that it, it, it's not a, as much an equation as it just describes relationships between these three factors, likelihood, vulnerability, and consequences. And the first thing you had to identify in that, when you, when you, if you think about it as an equation, is who owns the risk? Because that will really determine, that, I mean, all of those relationships, the elements of those relationships are variables and, and consequences uh, mean different things to different uh, participants. So the owner of risk is gonna be the determinant of what consequences are acceptable or not acceptable. And so, you know, the president and the secretary may have a different view of consequences than uh, you know, a division commander down in down in the ranks someplace, and and so understanding that relationship between and and where you can act 
uh, in terms of reducing risks or maybe uh, being willing to take more risks? Can I impact likelihood? Can I impact vulnerability? Can I impact consequences? And in what combination of capabilities do I need to develop? Uh, and, and Leo and I have called them risk levers to uh, reduce risk. The other thing that is related to, and so yes, we we use that in as a shorthand to describe why the NORTHCOM commander, uh, you know, might feel the risk of uh, a hurricane is is more is more dramatic than uh, on the you know Gulf Coast of the United States, and more important than it might be to the Pacific Command commander, or the Central <laughs> Command commander, and. Uh, but the whole conversation about risk really was much more enriched once we started talking together about these ideas. And, uh, and so uh, I think both of us have gotten a, a lot out of the conversation and developed it uh, quite a bit further, as, as you probably noted in the book. The one thing I would say related to the will to win is that in the military, we also think that uh, almost uh, – you know, interchangeable with vulnerability is opportunity. And so there's risk in not seizing opportunity and consequences to not seizing opportunity. And and there are, uh, of course, uh, the benefits uh, of taking risk uh, end up being the consequences that re- relate to winning. And it, it drives us to uh, take risks by going on the offense and staying on the offense uh, because of the opportunities that uh, come from that that are both related to uh, consequences and and to vulnerabilities. Well, the expression you use, who owns the risk? Um, I think most people like the idea of having ownership as an accountability. Um, It it tends to resonate, I think, particularly with people in business and and I'm sure in the Mm -hmm. military as well. Um, You talk in the book uh, about strategic and tactical agility as two different things. Does that mean that they have different risks owned by different parts of the organization, or how would you link this idea of owning the risk? Yeah, well, I'll let Leo talk to that. Uh, uh, But but, but just briefly, um, ultimately, commanders in the military own risk, And, uh, and above that, uh, political leadership because we you have a system that's based on civilian control of the military. So the, the ultimate risks are owned up the cha- up and down the chain of command. What our what our uh, command and control philosophy, uh, mission command, which we can talk about later, uh, tries to emphasize is that uh, in order to really deal with uh, the fog and friction of any military operation, uh, you need to decide what risks you can share, and and that's actually equal to empowerment. What empowerment risk sharing can you do to the depth of the organization, to the edge of the organization? Because that's where tactical agility gives you the most innovation and creativity is at the edge of the organization. So if if you're going to keep all the risk to yourself, you may be the owner of the risk as the NORTHCOM commander, but if, if you're not willing to share that, uh, you're not going to be effective at the edge of, at the edge of the organization where 
you know, decisions that have to be made that, that you can't possibly see and understand, but that the folks at the edge of the organization. So there is a relationship there between um, this idea of owning risk and then making decisions about how you share uh, risk as a, as a tool of empowerment. Go ahead, Leo. David, from, from my perspective, let me maybe reframe this a little bit away from risk ownership, which is obviously key, to the division of labor. Like, what is the division of labor uh, for any organization to function properly and really utilize both the strategic power of the executive team, but also decentralized execution and innovation and creativity of folks across the firm? So strategic agility is about the ability of boards and executives to make the most pivotal decisions in response to environmental changes. And these pivotal decisions involve products and services, business models, human capital, balance sheets. So big picture responses to uh, dramatic changes in the environment. Tactical agility is about almost the mirror image of this process across the organization, where the whole organization understands the strategy, understands the business philosophy, understands their role in, in implementing the strategy, and then feels empowered to overcome obstacles and capture opportunities and be creative in implementing that. So to your point, first of all, the nature of activity is different. Secondly, the nature of risks undertaken in the process is different. The two are equally important, but obviously, uh, there needs to be a decision made about where this top-down strategy and direction ends and this bottom-up creativity implementation, et cetera, begin. And, and of course, we all know some of the generic descriptions that have come out in recent years about indiscriminate flattening of organizations, et cetera. One of the most interesting conclusions of this research that went into this book was this notion that the answer to this question is not a matter of best practices, but rather it's a function of the nature of risks taken across the organization. Because the more interconnected these risks are, the more there is a need for a centralized understanding, integration, and direction. If you are operating in a world of truly independent risks, then you have much more flexibility about how to structure some of these organizations. Well, I, I thought, too, in, in reading some of the things that you've written, um, in talking about command and control, I think the initial response that people have to that expression is a rigid system. But what you guys have said is the goal of command and control is to seamlessly meld a centralized vision and planning with decentralized, empowered execution. Um, and you emphasize the word empowered, which I think is really important. But I'd taken this other note, which I think, Leo, you just started to talk about, um, when you were discussing the notion of flattening organizations, if an organization has interconnected risks, that's potentially disastrous because people aren't aware of this, this high correlation because they, they don't uh, interact with each other. Can you just expand on that uh, in, in reference to what you had just said? Sure. And um, this entire train of thought did come from asset management and finance where we have seen uh, the following. So suppose there is an organization that truly believes that they are the best of the best in bottom-up security selection. 
in whatever markets they operate. Uh, the entire organization is structured to facilitate fundamental analysis, relative value analysis, and then it all sort of comes together within the silos related to asset classes or mandates, et cetera, et cetera. And we have seen many of these organizations, and of course, both organizations themselves and their clients are surprised every time uh, that when there is a market dislocation and losses and loss profiles appear to be entirely inconsistent with this narrative of alpha generation. So when we really dove into some of these cases with clients, what we discovered is that while they think they're in the business of alpha generation and bottom-up security selection, in fact, this entire process is that of risk aggregation. And all of these silos um, are in the business of taking on systematic risks through individual bottom-up security selection. So all of a sudden, you have uh, a number of silos doing amazing work, but there's a market dislocation. Everything starts moving in unison, and all of these risks become one. So, so that was uh, a key study that we saw over and over again with our clients, and it inspired the thought that it's not about skill sets necessarily. It's not about knowledge. It's not about risk controls. There's something uh, deeper about the interaction between organizational design and the nature of risk-taking. So that's where this entire train of thought came from. Well, I, I think in this environment, I mean, we, we can't, since uh, you know, it's, it's the end of April, we can't ignore the pandemic that's uh, affecting the world. So I have a couple of things I wanted to ask you guys about that. But um, one of the things that I have uh, commented to people is that the systems and networks within which we operate, whether it's our business, our business unit, um, maybe across all the military forces, General Jacoby and, and allied forces, systems and networks are becoming far more visible to people now that they're not working as well than they were when everything just marched along fine. How does this idea of systems and networks in the economy and in the military and in our businesses, how do your concepts of agility apply to those? What would a board member be thinking about in terms of all these uh, systems that they depend upon and the methods and the approach that you bring forward? So think about the, the definition of agility that we, uh, that we try to introduce. It's the organizational capacity to detect, assess, and respond to environmental changes in ways that are purposeful, decisive, and grounded in the will to win. So the very first step in this process is detection of change. And of course, detection of change rests on your deep knowledge of the operating environment. Um, I think many executives and many boards in frank conversations will, will tell you that they don't spend enough time sort of st stepping back and really thinking deeply about the nature of the environment in which th they operate. So in the knowledge of that environment, is twofold. One is it's really a very systematic way to conceptualize all the important trends that are happening across the domains that impact your business. That could be geopolitics, economics, biosphere, technology, et cetera, et cetera. But the second part is directly relevant to your question, which is uh, how much time do we spend conceptualizing not necessarily the trends or events, but the fundamental nature 
of the environment in which we operate, because understanding that nature will really start informing us about the impact of networks and all of these other connections that you, you referred to, David. So there were two fields of study that we combined to try to get to some of the insights in that. One was um, the theory of war by Karl von Clausewitz, who, who talked about the informational ambiguity, which he called fog, and he talked about the nature and impact of uncertainty, which he called friction. Very complementary to that is the modern study of complex adaptive systems and understanding of butterfly effects and system effects, etc. So when we think about you know, the theory of agility, it was directly created to reflect the nature of the environment, which is this massive, interconnected, volatile, complex adaptive mm -hmm. system uh, teetering so, on the edge of chaos. Yeah, so the, uh, the other piece of that, David, though, is that it, it, it's really the nature of competitive environments as well. And, and I think that that's, so I want, you know, I'm, keep, I'm going to keep trying to pull us back to the will to win. These competitive environments by their nature create the fog and friction and, and the, the disruption and the, the challenge of uncertainty grows in your risk equation. Your, your consequences grow correspondingly. And so, uh, this is going to sound negative, but I think one of the things that, that people are going to have to, and leaders are going to have to uh, look at hard is, you know, did they really just have a superficial understanding of their competitive environment? And, and by superficial, I, I, I don't, you know, that's not a question of negligence. It's a question of maybe their time horizons weren't long enough. Uh, maybe they uh, accepted risk in, in contradictory uh, relationships, um, you know, such as, you know, I'm going to, I've got a market economy and I'm going to uh, be equal partners with a non-market economy or a, you know, immature market economy. Am I going to um, uh, have exposure uh, by interdependencies that I've created? And, and somehow interdependency became a a great word that we all all were seeking when actually interdependency also means uh, you know exposure and, and greater risk uh, especially if there's strategic interdependencies which means that you are you, you're possibly uh, setting yourself up for uh, long-term challenges and 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 so I think that uh, this idea of we have to look deeper into the environment we have to go past you know, known risks that we've been managing. We have to fight for what Leo and I now describe as risk intelligence. And, and, re, and by fighting for it, we mean resource uh, understanding more about the environment and, and making more um, uh, uh, comprehensive plans about how we might deal with some of the uh, uncertainties that could lead to uh, disruptions that, like we face today. General, David, if I could add, oh, add one more ahead. thing. Chuck, Chuck is bringing up a very important point. So when we started thinking about uh, the risk equation and its close cousin strategic calculus, which is how you shape decisions by taking into account your goals, your risk, your capacity, and many other things, sort of the natural inclination of the military to immediately think about the competitive environment in the presence of the adversaries was really striking 
right? Because we, uh, you know, in business and finance, um, don't necessarily think that way or do not as explicitly think about our risk equations and, and what is the role of adversaries in our vulnerabilities, likelihoods, and consequences, but also the notion that our adversaries have risk equations too and make decisions based on incomplete information. So in, I'll give you one example. So, so in business and finance, sometimes or often, we think that likelihoods are given. They are they're reflective of exogenous events that we have no control over. The military really questions that because in some realms, likelihood is something that you can affect. So deterrence is, is one of the examples where you truly affect both your and your adversary's risk equations and you actually change not just the vulnerabilities and consequences, you actually change the likelihoods. So, so this in, incredible presence of adversaries as one of the most important factors I think can truly benefit uh, financial institutions and, and institutional investors. So next time you attend an investor call for a company, pay attention to how much time is spent on articulating your own strategy and your own earnings growth and things like that versus describing the competitive landscape and truly demonstrating the knowledge of what your opponents or disruptive uh, competitors are trying to do. And, and I think those concepts are really helpful for people as they enter the boardroom to think about what they're supposed to be doing. Um, and I want to, since our time went by incredibly quickly, but I want to give you guys a chance to wrap up on something I think, again, that's very timely um, and relevant to the work that you're doing. The conversation around the country right now, and I guess around the world right now, is how we try to return to some normalcy. How do we, quote, restart the economy? And I want to have you guys, if you can, in, in, in a somewhat brief way, tell us about walking into a boardroom right now and what you would tell a board about agility and, and agility and the concepts that you've developed and how it can help them assess the best steps forward as, again, we, quote, try to restart the economy. Sure. So, look, I think one of the biggest uh, takeaways from this entire experience uh, is this notion that our organizations will be facing disruption, change, and uncertainty forever. And considering that uncertainty is getting more pervasive, um, our large complex adaptive system is becoming more volatile, more interconnected. Um, we need to equip our organizations with the ability to detect, assess, and respond to all kinds of environmental changes repeatedly and consistently. And some of them will come as disruptions in technology, and some of them will come as geopolitical shocks, and some of them come as pandemics or, or recessions. So very different nature of things coming at us, and yet we need to detect, assess, respond, demonstrate the will to win, demonstrate purposefulness, etc. So right now is, uh, is a great example of uh, that kind of a landscape. So on the one hand, you have significant risks across business, finance, cybersecurity, etc., stemming from just the nature of the pandemic, nature of the recession. In one of the 
uh, pieces of advice that we discuss with boards and executives is are we thinking about the range of scenarios coming of it broadly enough? Are we really planning for significant contingencies? If, for instance, uh, we go into systemic credit crisis or all of this money printing by central banks results in significant inflation, are we thinking in terms of risk, in terms of strategy, in terms of planning, broadly enough to capture the entire universe of risks, entire vulnerabilities, likelihoods, and consequences. But alongside of these risks are significant uncertainties. The nature of work and learning can profoundly change. Uh, this pandemic can accelerate a lot of the trends in technology, like AI, in robotization, and gene editing. And then, and of course, depending on the social impacts, you could have the rise of nationalism and populism alongside of it. These are genuine uncertainties that can truly affect our organizations. So the goal to make that choice, to build organizations to systematically respond to change in a very disciplined, risk-conscious way, but also take into account the entire range of risks and uncertainties, we, we believe would benefit any organization. General David, the, yeah, so, um, you know, Leo and I talk about these things all the time. I really don't have any, anything additional to add to what he just said. I will say, though, that for an organization and for leaders to be prepared for this and to um, make this um, come to a reality for their organization, that they're thinking like this, you can't do it in the midst of a crisis. You, you, have, to, you have to create a mindset and a culture within your organization that says, this is part of our model. This is how we do business. And, and, you know, you have to have organic capability for planning, for leader development, for what we call risk intelligence to better understand the environment and the portfolio risks that we face. And, and you can't wait to discover this, um, you know, on April uh, 1st and, uh, you know, Ten states are locked down, and aircraft carriers have to park because they're infected. And and so, um, to be agile, it takes preparation and work, and and it's and it's a choice to be agile. And you have to choose uh, that if you're going to win in an, an increasingly disrupted and increase, increasingly competitive uh, world you're going to have to consider making this choice and doing the things organically and as a culture in your organization to be prepared for these things. You just can't invent it on the fly and say, let's uh, grab a bunch of young kids and put them in a room with pizza boxes and they'll figure this out for us today. Uh, and, and that's helpful. There are two things I'm just going to um, say that I think uh, echo the point you just made. Uh, you have a quote from Eisenhower, Dwight Eisenhower, um, on your site about how plans are worthless, but planning is everything in terms of building that agility. And then a survey someone shared with me from 2019 by E&Y that said approximately 20% of their respondents um, had faith that their resiliency planning would work under crisis. This is well before the pandemic. And a survey that just wrapped up over this weekend of the directors and chief risk officers group, which I run, where 70% of the respondents said that they've been satisfied with how their resilience planning worked. 
And that's a group of people who are already committed to risk governments, already committed to the planning, um, like you have described, General Jacoby. So I think you know, maybe reading too much into that data, but that's a pretty stark contrast um, where 70% where feel that things worked well. Um, and then of those 70%, 80% said they're going to continue to plan for how to do even better. So there's a mindset and a philosophy that I think is very much in keeping with what you guys have brought forward in the book, what you've brought forward in your work and in your lives. So go to theagilitybook.com. That'll take you to the resources. Um, you can reach out to Leo and General Jacoby. Again, thank you so much for all this time and insight. This is a really important book, and I hope it's read widely. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be thank, here. Thanks, David. Yeah, it was fun, and I enjoyed the conversation.